I'm going to invite you to go ahead and get out your Bibles. I see many of you already have your Bibles opened. Um, so we're going to be in John 6, John 6 this morning. And so uh, you can either have your Bible Bible, or you can have your uh, devotional that I know many of you have, uh, or you can have it open on your uh, cellular mobile uh, device. John 6, um, beginning with verse 1. John 6, beginning with verse 1. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, because you are a God indeed who meets us. Your mercies are new every morning. And Lord, as we sang about this morning, great is your faithfulness. Great is, in your, is your faithfulness in the midst of our struggles. Great is your faithfulness in the midst of uncertainties. Great is your faithfulness, Lord, in the midst of troubles and trials and tribulations. Great is your faithfulness in the midst of all that's going on in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives and in this world today. Great is your faithfulness. And now, God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, on a Sunday morning in 1851, a Sunday morning much like how we are gathered today, uh, a 40-year-old woman with seven children was seated in that congregation. Harriet Beecher Stowe, in the midst of, I don't know, the sermon, some point in time in the, in the service, she had a vision. She had a vision of a slave person being beaten to death. And she left church that Sunday morning so distraught, she didn't quite know what to do. And so she went home, she picked up a pen, she started writing. And not long after, Uncle Tom's Cabin became published. In fact, it was 170 years ago this week that Uncle Tom's Cabin was published. Now, the original print uh, was only 5,000 copies. And the crazy thing is uh, those 5,000 copies sold out in a matter of two days. Now, you need to know that even today, if someone sells 5,000 copies of any book, that puts them in the top 3%. I mean, what they had going here, what Harriet Beecher Stowe had going was something really incredible. And you couldn't buy this book in the South. It was a banned book. Then they went on to sell 300,000 copies, and they went fast. Some have even argued that Uncle Tom's Cabin has had more influence in American society and culture, only second to the Bible in terms of life transformation. It's been said that when Abraham Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe a few years later, he put out his hand and he said, so you're the woman, the little woman, who started this great big war. Just a small act of faith, picking up a pen and starting to write. On November 5th, 1872, a woman by the name of Susan B. Anthony walked into a polling place and voted in a presidential election. She was promptly arrested and put in jail. 
And she would spend the next 50 years of her life fighting for the woman's right to vote. She never lived to see the 19th Amendment. But again, a small act of courage, a small act of faith has transformed our society. On December 1st, 1955, a seamstress by the name of Rosa Parks boarded the Cleveland Avenue bus. And when she was asked to get up and move, she said, I'll pass. She too, of course, was arrested. Later, she said, you know, people said that I was just tired from a long day of work. She said, I wasn't tired. I was tired of giving in. A small act of courage, conviction, has transformed our nation and I think even the world. I share with you these three stories this morning about little things, about small things, small acts of faith, small acts of courage that have led to transformation, incredible transformation. And this, of course, is the story of loaves and fishes of Jesus taking something so small, something so tiny, and doing something so great, so incredible, something far beyond people's imaginations. And really, the story of loaves and fishes is how God takes small things and uses people, God's people, to do things far beyond they could ever ask or imagine. So the story begins this way. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. And we think, oh, this story starts out so great. There's a lot of people gathered together, a crowd. And we think about Jesus and crowds and, you know, church, we're like, oh, there's a bunch of people coming to hear Jesus. This is a great story because a lot of people have gathered together. But isn't it interesting that Jesus throughout the Gospels, he wasn't so, he didn't get as excited maybe as we get excited about a crowd. We tend to think, oh, more people coming to church. That's awesome. Jesus like, it's all right. He didn't get super excited says there's a qualifier here because they saw the signs. And I think this is why Jesus didn't get all that excited about a big crowd gathered together. They had come because they had seen signs. They'd experienced healings. They had experienced uh, uh, all all sorts of uh, wonderful teachings. And we're going through this, the, the gospel of John, where Jesus is performing many miracles. That's why they showed up. They showed up for the show. The fog machine, the strobe lights, the entertainment, the gifted preacher. That's what they showed up for. Jesus is like, all right. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, hey, where should we buy bread for all these people. So why does, go, why does Jesus go to Philip and say, hey, where do we get bread? Well, Philip was from that area. He was from that region. 
Philip, where's the five guys? Where's the Aldi? Where's the Walmart? You're the resourceful guy. What do we do? That's why he went to Philip. Verse 6. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And we hear this sentence and we think to ourselves, Ugh, I don't really like that about Jesus. I don't really like that about God. He tests us. He tests Philip. But I just want to remind us that tests are a part of our lives. Tests are put in place in order to help us, to keep us safe. If you were around in 1963 or any time thereafter, maybe you were listening to the radio, your favorite song was on the radio, and then all of a sudden the, your, your, your radio station was interrupted. This is a test. This is only a test. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. And you listen to it for like 30, 60 seconds. This stops. This was only a test. If this had been an actual emergency, you would have been directed to the local authorities and they would have told you what to do. Right? We all know that. Right? Why do they do that? Why do they interrupt our favorite song? Because the test was meant to help us. Because, in fact, if there was an emergency, we need to know what to do. So that's why we have these tests. And by the way, aren't you glad that medical doctors have to pass a test? Right? What if you went into the doctor's office and they're like, well, I don't know. I, I learned some stuff in some books. I heard some stuff on the Internet. Let's try surgery. I mean, we want our doctors to pass the test. Don't you want your accountant who's doing your taxes to having some pass the test of some competency? I think that's a good idea. You'd end up in jail. Or aren't you glad those insurance people have to take those tests? Some of you have explained to me these insurance tests many times. I still have no idea what they are. But I know some of you have passed a test and you've gotten to go to places like Hawaii because you passed a test. Congratulations, I'm happy for you. We didn't have that in seminary. <laughs> but I'm glad you understand the stuff you understand in the insurance world. But you had to pass a test. A test shows competence. A test shows knowledge. A test shows an opportunity for all of us to grow. And so Jesus uh, offers Philip a test, a way for him to, to step into his knowledge. Hey, Philip, do you believe who I say I am? Do you think I can do what I can do? It's not to try and fail him. It's to help him to grow. And that's what happens whenever Jesus offers us a test. Philip responds, and Philip answered him, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. I love Philip. He's a pragmatic, he's a practical guy. You know any practical people? People are just like, okay, I, I did the math, I counted it up not going to work, Jesus. But Jesus has set up a situation here. You know, someone once said, when God wants to do something really great, 
It begins with a difficult situation. But when God wants to do something truly amazing, he begins with an impossible situation. And that's what this is. This is an impossible situation. It cannot happen. There's all those people. And Philip, remember, Philip's from around there. The food court's not big enough. It's not going to hold all these people, whether it's 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, probably not even 1,000. It just wasn't going to happen. And I think it's also interesting uh, that Philip's response is so pragmatic because Philip was also at the water to wine whole situation, right? So you would think Philip has already witnessed some miracles and Jesus comes to him and says, hey, we have an opportunity. Let's do something. And you would have thought Philip would have been like, well, he could turn water into wine. I wonder what he's going to do. Why didn't he say, hey, Jesus, I think you should do something really cool here. Nope, not Philip. He goes right to pragmatic, right to practical. We don't have enough. We're going to need about $25,000 to feed all these people. We don't have that kind of change on us. Later on, as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, he's having a meal with his disciples. And he has this great conversation. He says, hey, guys, I'm leaving. I'm going away. But when I go, go away, I'm coming back to bring you with me. And Thomas is like, no, we don't get it. We don't understand. I doubt it, right? And Philip was there. And Philip says, show us the Father, and then we will believe. He's that pragmatic guy. Do you know somebody that's just like, if I can see Jesus, then I'll believe in Jesus? That's Philip. He needs to see it with his own eyes. And on that day, he's like, I need to see it to believe it. It's not going to work. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? That little boy and Andrew said, we've got some stuff that's really small. I wonder if we put that in the hands of Jesus, what he could do. Isn't that true that sometimes... The littlest things in the hands of Jesus can do so much. A pen in the hand of Harriet. A little bit of time in Susan's life. A little bit of conviction in Rosa's life. These small acts lead to something so great. And so Andrew and this boy, they come to Jesus, and they're like, this is all we got. We're just going to give it to you and see what happens. See, I think there's really two attitudes when it relates to what we've got, when it relates to our stuff, when it relates to our possessions, when it relates to our resources. Uh, what, the first attitude is what's mine is mine. I mean, this is the American you know, mindset, right? I earned it. It's mine. Whether it's your stuff, your money, whatever. What's mine is mine. And then there's another attitude. What's mine is God's. That, of course, is stewardship. This is the biblical understanding of our stuff. What's mine actually belongs to God. 
And when I put God's stuff in God's hands, he can do greater things. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Now, as I mentioned earlier uh, at the beginning of worship this morning, uh, this miracle is recorded in all four Gospels. And some of the other Gospels offer more detail about what's going on. John just tells us kind of, you know, that Jesus makes this happen. But what the Gospel of Matthew tells us is that Jesus actually gave the bread and the fish first to the disciples, and then the disciples passed this out, performed the miracle, which tells us that Jesus uses people to perform these miracles, that the miracle actually happened through the hands of the disciples. Jesus was in charge, but he used his people to perform this miracle. And I can about imagine, again, 5, 10, 15,000 people on that day. How many of those people actually realized who was doing the miracle? I think most people were just sitting there on that day, and one of the 12 disciples started giving them uh, bread and fish. I don't think that they were necessarily even aware of what was going on, but the disciples were. See, in many ways, I think this was a miracle more for the disciples than for the crowd because it really impacted the disciples uh, through this miracle. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. Again, this is a, a, a miracle of stewardship. One, one old preacher said it this way, don't waste Jesus' bread. I like that. Don't waste his bread. It's, it, it's about stewardship. We've got to take care of what God has given to us. We need to really take care because it's not ours. It's his. It's God's. We need to be faithful. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets of, uh, with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Again, it's just this, this abundance, this, this math that just does not make sense. And I can, I can about imagine that little boy who, who showed up with the five loaves and two fish. And this isn't in the story. But what if he took one of those baskets home? Hey, Mom, I went with this. Look what I brought home. It, 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 I just love that part of the story, that there's even 12 left over. Now, the miracle, the story could have ended there, the end. It would be like, that's a great story. That's a great miracle. That's a great sign that points to Jesus' power and how he works through people. But interestingly, that's not how the story ends. John continues on because there's more to the story. After the people saw the sign or the miracle Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is a the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing what they had intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And this is what happened over and over in Jesus' experience over those three years. Jesus the butler. When Jesus shows up and has a great sermon, lots of people come. 
When Jesus shows up and feeds people, lots of people come. When Jesus shows up and performs a miracle, lots of people come. And lots and lots of people come when Jesus is taking care of me and my needs. And he's, he's bedazzling me and he's, he's entertaining me and he's making um, me intrigued and helping me to really think and to grow. But the moment Jesus stops or he's slow to answer your prayers, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to church today. I don't know if I'm going to read my Bible today. Jesus is silent. I don't really know about Jesus. It's so dependent on having their needs met. We're going to read here, I don't know if it's next week or the week after, but by the end of this chapter, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more because he was saying hard words. And there were still miracles, there were still healings, there were still feedings, there were still lots of incredible things going on, but Jesus' words were too difficult for them to hear, and they're like, nah, he's not meeting my needs anymore. Now, I've been told that consumerism is rampant in the church today. Not in this church, I know, because you guys all come, whether it's a good sermon or a bad sermon, you guys all come if the music's good or the music's bad. You guys all come whether the communion's good or the communion's bad. You guys come whether the fellowship is good or bad. But I've been told that there are some people who go to church to receive and receive and receive and receive. And if it doesn't taste good enough, if it doesn't feel good enough, ah, I'm going to go to another church where I'm going to just stay home. Now, I found a cartoon this week that I don't know if you guys can read or not. Um, there you go. So uh, again, this doesn't apply to me, but I, I've heard this applies to other pastors, that as the bald preacher is up there preaching, um, there are people out there uh, that were holding up signs in their heads. Don't mention hell. It makes me uncomfortable. Please refer to sin as bad choices. Tell me again how much God wants to bless me. Make sure there are enough uh, programs uh, for my kids. Remember how much money I give each week? Tell me how to get rich. Tickle my ears. If you don't do things my way, I'm leaving. What can Jesus do for me? Preacher, you need to be relevant. Preach only the good news. Stay away from the cross. It's uncomfortable, painful, sacrificial. Not in this church, I know. I've heard that sometimes people approach church and Jesus with a consumer mindset. That's certainly what Jesus experienced. And I got to tell you, I want to be real blunt with you this morning. Sometimes some of you share with me, hey, your sermon really spoke to me. Your message really fed me. I feel like I've been fueled up and I'm ready for my week. And I hear your sentiment. I hear what you're saying and I appreciate it. But make no mistake about it. My goal on Sunday morning is not to fill you up. My goal on Sunday morning is not to satiate you. My goal on Sunday morning is not to make you feel good. My goal on Sunday morning is to make you hungry. That when you go out these doors, 
You're not thinking about how good you feel in the moment, but you're thinking, I can't wait till tomorrow. I can't wait till tomorrow and I get to read from God's word what God has to say to me. That you just become hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. I'm going to share a story with you. This past week, I sat down uh, with a member of our congregation um, and just having coffee, it's what I do. Many of you know that's what I do is I just have coffee with uh, so many of you and I love it. And so as we're having coffee, I says, hey, how are things going? How's your daily devotion going? And this person who grew up Catholic uh, said, and those of you who uh, maybe grew up Catholic or know people that grew up Catholic, this whole Bible reading thing is kind of a new thing, right? Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, this person uh, read through the Bible last year, first time in their life. They're reading through the Gospel of John this year. And I said, how's your Bible reading going? I said, you know, I got to tell you, it's not enough. Really? It's not enough. Tell me about that. I just want to read more. I just want more of God's word. And I got to tell you, that just made my heart so full. I just, I was so overjoyed that this was a person who's become hungry, hungry for God's word. That's my goal for all of you. Not that you come on Sunday. I'm happy that you come here on Sunday morning. I'm happy the ways in which you serve. I'm happy the ways that you live out your faith. But what really makes me happy, what really makes my heart full is when you are so hungry and you're digging into God's word and your prayer life is rich and you're talking to people about Jesus and you're just like, I've got, I was talking to this non-Christian, this non-believer, and I was into this dilemma. It's just like, oh, you're so hungry. I want to make you hungry. I want you to walk out these doors and be so hungry. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. How many of you know that even when you're walking with Jesus, the waters can be rough? The storms around us Happened for the disciples too. Welcome to life. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Remember the first test in this story? Hey, Phil, where are we going to get food? I think Philip failed the test. But I think this time around, the disciples passed the test because it says they allowed him into the boat. And you might be thinking, of course they allowed him into the boat. He's Jesus. But how often in your own life or in the lives of other people that you know, they're going through a storm. I want Jesus. I don't need Jesus. I'm mad at Jesus. I don't even believe Jesus exists. He's, he's, he's right there, but they don't let him in the boat. But in this moment, they allowed him to the boat. See, I think this, we have a dilemma. All of us have a dilemma as we go through life. And I think our dilemma is simply this, as we think about the story of loaves and fishes, and it's simply this, I don't have enough. I'm not adequate enough. 
I'm not skilled enough. I don't have enough resources. I don't have enough. In fact, some of you, as I talk about, you know, five loaves and two small fishes, you're like, yep, that's me. Not enough. Barely enough to feed me. I certainly don't have enough to share with anyone else. But here, what the story tells us today is that Jesus specializes in small things. This is perfect for Jesus. You don't have to have enough. You just have to have. Know what you have. And give it, put it into the hands of Jesus. See, here, here I, I just know this by experience. Here's what I know. I'm not the smartest one in the room. I'm not even the smartest one in my own house. I mean, I'm just used to that. But I know I'm smarter than some other people. So I am. I'm also not the most talented person in the room. I'm not the most talented person in my own house. But I'm more talented, you know, than some other people. And by the way, isn't it interesting when people come to you and share with you maybe how talented you are? You think to yourself, okay, I wasn't always that talented. I mean, once upon a time, I was not comfortable standing in front of a group of people and preaching. Talent is developed through practice over and over and over. And some of you are really talented because you've worked really hard. Some of you are smart because you've worked really hard. You've taken a little bit and grown it. So I think there's hope for all of us as we think about what it means to have enough. What we need more than anything is not just the the little bit that we've got, but it really is about willingness and availability. That's the gift that uh, that, uh, Andrew and the little boy brought, was just their willingness. How, here's, we're going to review. How many fish did the boy have? Two. How many pieces of bread? Five. How many fish did the boy give to Jesus? How many bread did the boy give to Jesus? Five. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but if my math is correct, he gave it all. See, oftentimes I think what we do is we're like, Jesus, here's a fish, here's a piece of bread. I'm just giving you a little part of me. The boy gave it all. And I think this is one of the most terrifying things for all of us. It's to not just give Jesus a part of our lives, but to give Jesus our entire lives. Because notice what Jesus does. When he receives the bread and the fish, he gives it back. And he gives it back in abundance. So as long as you go through life, living you for you, or maybe giving Jesus a little bit, Jesus might add. Or if it's all about you, Jesus is not going to add. But if you surrender everything, your gifts, your talents, your resources, your friendships, your relationships, give everything to Jesus, he might just perform a miracle. And he might perform a miracle far beyond anything that you could even imagine today. And I think that is the 
amazing part of this story of how Jesus multiplies the very things in our lives that were like, it's so small. Jesus says, I can make it big. You got to give it to me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are indeed a God um, of extraordinary abundance, a God who gives and gives and gives, but we need to give first. We need to give back to you with the abundance that you have first given us. And so, Lord, teach us daily to surrender our lives, to give every element, every piece, everything about us to you and watch what you do. Lord, we thank you for the faith of that boy. We thank you for the faith of Andrew. We thank you, God, for the faith that you have given to us today. Help us, Lord, to truly be people who surrender our lives to give everything to you in all that we do. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.